on the sepulchres of your fathers, slain by the Medes and buried in our country. We remind you of that day on which we did the most glorious deeds by your father's sides, we who now on this day are likely to suffer the most dreadful fate. The Plataean prisoners, moments before the Spartans executed them, after the siege of Plataea ended in Peloponnesian victory. Welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. This is the 22nd episode of The Greek Sun, a series of podcasts about the history of ancient Greece. Today's episode will take another look at the Peloponnesian War, which I began to discuss in episode 20. Now, I mostly use the text of Thucydides in my research for these episodes. I prefer to rely on primary sources as much as possible, rather than on excerpts and on secondary or tertiary sources online or in other books. And this is a really valuable approach with this particular text. Those with interests in politics and the history of politics in particular benefit from a close reading of Thucydides' Peloponnesian War. The text may be on its surface about a now seemingly inconsequential war between primitively armed foes in comparatively few numbers. Consider that the Athenians fielded just 10,000 heavy infantry at their maximum mobilization probably never fielded as much as 100,000 in all areas of the war simultaneously, nothing like the millions that modern armies have fielded in the last century. Yet, Thucydides uses this war as an opportunity to analyze human behavior under a variety of trying conditions. Already in my first episode about the war, I quoted Thucydides' remarks about the behavior of his fellow Athenians as the plague changed their whole way of life, their sense of security, their religious outlook. Today's episode will conclude with some of Thucydides' reflections on how the savagery of war changed people, how people came to appreciate moralities different than those that they had held before war came into their life, how war made people savage, and in their savagery, they changed war even more. Now, before we get underway, let me remind you to visit the website, western-traditions.org. There you can find all the episodes, as well as some helpful maps and pictures. I also usually include some recommendations for good books to read to support what you learn here at the Western Traditions podcast. You can also buy Western Traditions merchandise on the website or support the podcast directly through the PayPal or Patreon options found there. Wherever you listen, at the website, or on Spotify, or Amazon Music, or elsewhere, please remember to like, share, comment, and subscribe. And now, let's return to the Peloponnesian War. In its third year, as Athens is still in the throes of the plague, and Sparta is trying to adapt to warfare against the ever-innovating Athenians. third year of the war, Sparta threw its first real curveball at Athens. That summer, instead of ravaging Attica, which must have been pretty thoroughly wrecked by now, the army of the Spartans and their Peloponnesian allies came through the isthmus as usual, but this time they turned away from the Athenian countryside and they turned north into Boeotia, 
and they attacked the little town of Plataea. Plataea, you may remember, was the site of the defeat of the invading Persian army in 479 BC, some 50 years before this. Plataea had also been famous for its stubbornness and its tenacity in the face of the Persian invasion, having been the only Boeotian city not to have medized, that is, not to have given earth and water to the enemy as a sign of submission. In Plataea also, as you may remember from a previous episode, this present war had also really gotten started when the Thebans tried to seize control of the town center, and the Plataeans had first received the surrender of the invaders, and then massacred all of their prisoners. And then Athens had come to aid their longtime allies and gotten themselves finally and completely embroiled in the general conflict. Now Thebes, the eternal enemy of Plataea, eagerly besieged the town now with the help of the Peloponnesians. There was a pause, though, at the start of siege operations, because at this stage of the war there was still some semblance of civility remaining in the war's participants. The Plataeans, during this brief truce, reminded Archidamus, king of the Spartans and general of the allied army, they reminded him of their glorious past in the war against the Persians, such as the quote with which I started this episode. They reminded them of the time when their mutual forefathers, standing side by side, had died for Greece here. Now Archidamus, after hearing them out, offered the Plataeans an opportunity to become a neutral city and to exit the war unharmed. This would allow them to remain free, but they would no longer be able to help Athens in any way. Now, remember from the last episode about this war that the wives and children of the Plataeans were now in Athens, being held there for safety, and the Plataeans were being asked to betray Athens and really risk their family's well-being as well. Archidamus, though, still deferential, allowed the Plataeans to send an embassy to Athens and to counsel with them. This sort of courtesy would soon become non-existent in the Peloponnesian War. The Athenians, though, received the Plataean messengers, and they vowed to aid the city no matter what. And so the Plataeans decided to remain loyal to their ancient brotherhood with the, with the Athenians. After receiving this answer from the Plataeans that they would not surrender, the Spartans renewed the offensive, and then the siege really began, and the war carried on not to pause again for many years. Archidamus, king of the Spartans and Peloponnesian general, he then he cut down all the fruit trees in the Plataean countryside, and he built a wall around the town with the lumber from all these cut-down trees. This wall would have encircled the wall that was already protecting the town. And then he began to build a mound against the city wall, the wall behind which Plataea's few defenders, among them both Plataeans and Athenians, behind which wall these few men stood guard. Now, mounds such as this would often in other wars be used to place siege towers or ancient artillery like catapults in order to fire missiles into the city at exposed inhabitants. But here, the intent seems to have been simply to reach the maximum height of the wall so that the invading soldiers could pour over it and seize the town. So the Plataeans, in response, began to build up their wall higher wherever the mound touched it. 
Here, Thucydides goes on at length to describe the various ways that the enemies here used techniques and counter-techniques to outdo one another in this operation. And the text as a whole is really remarkable for that, among other things, for the detailed description of combat operations. I won't repeat the nitty-gritty details very often, but keep in mind that nearly every time that I describe some conflict, I am leaving out a mountain of detail that Thucydides often provides about number of troops, quantities of provisions, movements of particular units in combat, and so on and so on. This really suggests that Thucydides, at this point in the war anyway, was truly an insider, one of the leaders in Athens, and unusually aware of both Athenian and Spartan statistics. Now, this third year of the war, combat operations now became more widespread and simultaneous everywhere in the Greek theater. This same summer, the Athenians mobilized and transported over 2,000 troops and sent them north by ship to fight in Thrace, and the Spartans launched an attack on Acarnania, a western Greek province allied to Athens but on the Peloponnesian flank. At sea, though, the Athenians remained dominant everywhere. North of the Peloponnesus, there's a thin channel of water separating that peninsula from mainland Greece. Here, the Spartans and their allies hoped to destroy a small contingent of Athenian ships, just 20 of them, which had come to aid their allies in Acarnania. The Spartans led an attack on this squadron with their own local fleet of 47 Peloponnesian triremes, way outnumbering the Greeks way outnumbering the Athenians. Thucydides here describes in wonderful detail how the Athenians' deft sea maneuvers defeated the enemy soundly there, even when they were outnumbered that badly. And now in the text, we begin to hear the names of the new men who will come to dominate this portion of the war, men like Formio, the Athenian admiral, and Brasidas, one of the Spartan generals, sent to investigate the losses near Acarnania and to reorient the Peloponnesian war effort. We will hear more, especially about Brasidas, as the war carries on. Now, later in that year, in the winter, this same Brasidas organized a sneak attack on Athens, a very unspartan-like sneak attack. He led Peloponnesian sailors as they carried their oars and equipment over the isthmus from the Gulf of Corinth to the port city of Nisei, not far from Athens, where there happened to be 40 unmanned ships waiting for them. They loaded onto the ships, and the plan was to make a surprise attack on the Piraeus itself, the port of Athens, and the heart of Athens' connection to the outside world. But at the last minute, they refrained and instead attacked the island of Salamis. Athens at this time, as the Spartans knew, was virtually defenseless because they were suffering the plague and most of their able-bodied men were employed in operations at sea or elsewhere. When the remaining Athenian citizens learned, though, that Salamis was under attack, they quickly manned whatever ship they could find, formed a fleet, and sailed out to drive off the Spartans. Brasidas led his ships away from Salamis and back to the Isthmus, rather than face even a makeshift Athenian fleet. From that time forward, the Athenians would never leave their port city unguarded, and the Spartans may have lost an early opportunity to scare the Athenians into peace terms, or even to seize the city of Athens itself. The next couple of years would bring an increasing flurry of activity for both sides. Also, the number of dead would amass quickly as slaughters and massacres ensued across the whole of Greece. 
Sparta and its allies made their usual entrance into Attica and ran another lackluster campaign, destroying the countryside for a few weeks before returning home. The Athenians also learned, early in that fourth year of the war, that the island of Lesbos, led by its chief city Mytilene, had revolted from the Delian League. And here, in the text of Thucydides' history, here is where I really begin to marvel. Athens has been essentially besieged for three years now, unable to use its land productively, living off stores and produce brought in from overseas, sending out its most productive members of society every year to man ships and to form combat units and to staff siege armies, and they have been decimated by plague. And now, with one of their major allies rebelling, threatening not just to leave the alliance, but potentially become an, an, a new enemy, the Athenians are still not capable of despair. They gather additional men to crew 40 more ships and send them to Lesbos to return the island to obedience. There, the Athenian troops settled in for another siege around the city of Mytilene. Meanwhile, the Athenians were still defending Potidaea in the north and Plataea in Boeotia. And the Athenians simultaneously crewed another 30 ships to send around the Peloponnesus to terrorize the Spartans and their allies so that they did not take advantage of this moment of weakness in the Athenian alliance. The Mytilenians, the leaders of that mutiny on the island of Lesbos, they had by this time already sent an embassy to Sparta, and they sat before a council of the allies of the Peloponnesian League and made their case, asking for the Spartans to lead a combined fleet to their island and to defend it from Athens. Here, Thucydides reproduces a long speech, and I should remind you that this history is in many ways a compilation of speeches reproduced by Thucydides. The Mytilenians say in this speech that they joined the Delian League and accepted the leadership of Athens decades before because Athens was at that time the foremost among those who wished to defend Greece from, quote-unquote, the Mede, which is how the Greeks often characterized the Persians and their allies. But now, say the Mytilenians, looking to defend their betrayal of the alliance, now Athens has relaxed its hostility to the Mede and focused all its efforts on taking tribute from its subjects. They also try to tempt the Spartans by describing the weakness of Athens, devastated by plague and stretched thin in terms of manpower and resources. Now, they tell the Spartans, now is the time to make a second attack that same year, to return in force to Attica and to bring ships over the Isthmus from the Gulf of Corinth and make a combined land and naval assault on Athens, which would surely crumble in its weakened state. Recall that the Spartans and their allies had up until this point, made just a single attack on Athens and its countryside every summer, usually for only a few weeks, before returning to their home countries, where they had crops to tend to and slaves to oversee. Yet, the Spartans agreed and began to mobilize for just such a second attack. But the Athenians see the trouble coming this time, and somehow they cobble together another 100 ships, man them all with citizens from the city, and sail out in a show of force to show the Spartans that they will not be overcome yet. The Athenians then also sent out another 12 ships to go visit each of their allies one by one and exact more tribute from them for the purpose of sustaining the war. Whether you side with the Athenians or not in this war, you have to admire their tenacity, their endurance, and their versatility in, this, in the face of such incredible adversity. 
As the fifth year of the war opened, the Spartans invaded Attica again, and they sent a fleet, which Thucydides criticizes for its slow approach, they sent a fleet to aid the Mytilenians. Finally, those Mytilenians besieged on the island of Lesbos by the Athenians. But by then, the Mytilenian people were fed up with the siege. They convinced their leaders to surrender the city. The leaders of Mytilene, though, negotiated with the Athenians besieging them to take them prisoner and to perform no executions and to sell no captives as slaves, which was the traditional acts of warfare after a capitulation, to do none of that until they had a chance to plead their case in Athens itself. And the Athenians agreed. They sent the Mytilenian ambassadors directly to Athens. The Athenians could do this without hesitation, as they still had complete mastery of the sea and feared no opposition there. Arrived at Athens, the the Athenians learned that among the prisoners sent to negotiate was a Spartan who had infiltrated Mytilene and encouraged their rebellion. This Spartan, his name was Salathus, was immediately executed. Then, in the heat of the moment, the assembly decided not only to kill all the prisoners brought to them, but also the entire adult male population of the city of Mytilene on Lesbos, and to sell all the women and children into slavery, and they immediately sent a ship to communicate this decision to the Athenians who now held the city captive. The next day, though, as Thucydides says, brought repentance. Perhaps some of the hot-blooded among the Athenians had difficulty sleeping that night, thinking of their decision to massacre an entire city. This would probably be the last time that anyone had such hesitations for the next 20 years or so. Anyway, the Athenians gathered again and called into question this decision of the day before. Coming forward to push for mass execution was a man named Cleon, who had come to represent the old aristocratic elements of Athenian society and who was known most for his ferocity in this war now. Cleon's speech is reproduced in its entirety in the text of Thucydides, and it is an interesting read as he makes out why the slaughter of the prisoners on Lesbos is actually the best strategic decision and not simply hot-blooded revenge. He begins thus, I have often before now been convinced that a democracy is incapable of empire, and never more so than by your present change of mind. He accuses his fellow Athenians of, quote, forgetting that your empire is a despotism and your subjects disaffected conspirators, whose obedience is ensured not by your suicidal concessions, but by the superiority given you by your own strength. As Pericles had said at the beginning of the war, with, with their empire, the Athenians had a, te- a tiger by the tail and there was no letting go of it. Relenting and showing mercy would mean death or slavery for all of them in Athens. Cleon here may sound familiar, like certain modern politicians, when he blames this weakness not on the common people, but on the elite of Athenian society. Ordinary men usually manage public affairs better than their more gifted fellows, he says. The gifted are always wanting to appear wiser than the laws. He reinforces that Lesbos was never under any threat from Sparta, and its revolt was really an act of aggression in turning on Athens. And he reminds all of them that the island is well-populated, well-defended, well-armed, and possesses the capacity anyway for a strong navy. And he makes a moral distinction with regard to mercy and compassion. Mercy, he says, is only for unwilling offenders. Compassion is due to those who can reciprocate the feeling not to those who will never pity us in return. 
And then there is this formidable line of thought. If they are right in rebelling, you must be wrong in ruling. However, if right or wrong, you decide to rule, then you must carry out your principle and punish the Mytilenians as your interest requires, or else you must give up your empire. And Cleon finishes his speech with these words, Punish them as they deserve, and teach your other allies by a striking example that the penalty of rebellion is death. Let them understand this, and you will not so often have to neglect your enemies while you are fighting with your own confederates. Feel however you may about this decision to execute the Mytilenians, the speech of Cleon is finely crafted, and the logic of its morality is powerful even if you do not agree with it. The wonderful thing about the political thought of that time period in Greece, when compared especially to our own times anyway, is that people's positions are so clear and their reasoning concise. You can actually have a dialogue because people make points based on a moral foundation which you can recognize and either choose to attack or to support. But Cleon did not speak unopposed. An Athenian named Diodatus, who had originally voted to spare the Mytilenians, now stood to speak. I think, he says, the two things most opposed to good counsel are haste and passion. Haste usually goes hand in hand with folly, and passion with coarseness and narrowness of mind. At length, he criticizes Cleon's views about nuanced reasoning, and we see here clearly a debate that to this day still dominates our public dialogue. The opposition between certain demagogues, one claiming to represent the needs and desires of the common man, and another constantly calling for more sophistication in public policy. But after defending himself from the perceived slights in Cleon's speech, Diodotus goes on. I have not come forward either to oppose or to accuse in the matter of Mytilene. The question before us as sensible men is not their guilt, but our interests. Though I prove the Mytilenes to be ever so guilty, I shall not advise their death. The question is not justice, but how to make the Mytilenians useful to Athens." Diodotus goes on. Now, of course, communities have enacted the penalty of death for many offenses far lighter than this. Still, hope leads men to venture, and no one ever put himself in peril without the inward conviction that he would succeed. All states and, all states and individuals are alike prone to err, and there is no law that will prevent, prevent them from doing so. Or why should men have exhausted the list of punishments in search of enactments to protect them from evildoers? Here, if you follow Diodotus's sort of roundabout way of saying it, he's saying that there's no penalty, not even death, which will stop people from doing something. Because as he later says, obviously in prior times they went through all the lighter penalties and none worked. And now we have the death penalty and it still doesn't stop people from doing these things. He goes on, either some means of terror more terrible than death must be discovered or it must be accepted that this restraint is useless, and that as long as poverty gives men the courage of necessity, or plenty fills them with ambition, so long will the impulse never be wanting to drive men into danger. We must not, therefore, commit ourselves to a false policy through a belief in the efficacy of the punishment of death, or exclude rebels from the hope of repentance and an early atonement of their error. 
and now Diodotus gets really pragmatic and logical rather than forgiving and compassionate, what city would not prepare better than they do already, he says, and hold out to the last against besiegers if the end result is all the same whether they surrender or not? Basically, if Athens kills the Mytilenians, it will not stop other cities from rebelling, and it will convince those who do rebel that they should never give up, because they'll be killed anyway. A new vote was held, and the vote was nearly equal for both arguments, but Diodotus's motion to spare the Mytilenian population just barely passed. Immediately, a ship was sent to rescind the order on Lesbos before it was carried out. Now, the ship carrying the order for mass execution had a day's lead, so the men of the chasing ship took their meals at their oars and they took turns sleeping so that the boat never slowed. Nevertheless, the ship carrying the execution order did arrive first, and the Athenian general in Mytilene was just reading the command to execute everyone when the second ship arrived in port and proclaimed the order for execution null and void. Even so, about a thousand of the primary culprits in the rebellion were still put to death. The walls of the city were then destroyed, and all the city's ships were confiscated for Athens. The land belonging to the city and the people of Mytilene was divided into 3,000 lots. 300 of those lots of land were reserved for the gods as sacred. The rest of the land was given to Athenian shareholders, to whom the remaining people of Mytilene would have to pay rent each year as they worked the land themselves. That same year, the little town of Plataea finally surrendered to the Spartans and their allies. The previous year, a few hundred of the city's defenders, including many Athenian troops who had come the year before that to help defend the town, they all made a dramatic night escape, told in extreme detail by Thucydides. But now there were fewer men inside the walls and fewer stores to supply them. Now, the Spartan commander at Plataea actually wanted the Plataeans to give up the town by choice and not by force. Therefore, the thought was, should the war come to peace negotiations, the Spartans would not have to give back Plataea in any bargaining between the two sides because the Plataeans would have legally handed the town over rather than lost it through force in the war. Yes, lawyering like this existed even so long ago. So the Spartan commander promised the Plataean men trapped in the besieged city that if they surrendered the town with no conditions they would all receive fair judgment rather than immediate execution. The tired, hungry defenders surrendered immediately, and the Peloponnesian army fed them for five days while they waited for judges to come from Sparta. Remember the trust that all Greeks had in Spartan legal judgments. Now, when the judges came, though, they gathered the Plataeans together and simply asked them all, as a group, whether they had ever done the Spartans and their allies any service in this war. The Plataeans heard the doom in this question. Obviously, the honest answer was going to get them all killed, and they felt betrayed by their confidence in the Spartans. They asked permission to answer at length and to have two of their number represent them. Their answer is preserved in its entirety in the text, and it is several pages long. 
Instead of getting directly to the point, which is that they did not do any service to Lakedamon and were obviously enemies of all the Peloponnesians and of Thebes, instead, the Plataeans begin by refer referring back to the war against the Spartans and the service that Plataea did for all of Greece there. They also remind the Spartans how they did not take advantage of the Spartan weakness during the recent earthquake, after which the Helot slaves in Sparta rebelled. They then point out how they could not have acted any other way than they have since the Thebans attacked them and the Thebans have ever been the enemies of Plataea. The Thebans, they also remind all listening, while they may be Spartan allies today, were among those who met Medes during the Persian War. They gave earth and water to the king. Knowing that this is their last hope, the Plataeans are pulling out all the stops in their argument. They remind the Spartans also that they are paragons of honor for all of Greece, trusted to act justly. Remember how in a previous episode I told you about how the Greek cities would invite individual Spartans to come and act as judges in internal factional disputes because their judgment was so trusted. Now, Fearing that the Spartans might show the captured Plataeans mercy, the Thebans asked leave to speak afterward. Their remarks are also lengthy, but in my mind not near, nearly as memorable, except for one moment. They respond to the accusation that Thebes medized during the Persian War by saying that the Plataeans are atticizing, coining a new term and referring to the Platon's submission to Athens, of course. The Spartans, after hearing all this, spoke amongst themselves. Then they ushered each Plataean in individually for a private conference in which they were each asked again if they had provided any service to Sparta during the war. When each of the Plataeans naturally answered no, he was slain immediately. Thus, some 200 Plataeans and 25 remaining Athenian soldiers, who probably never had a chance anyway, they were all massacred. The few remaining women in the town were sold as slaves. For a while, Thebans and certain Plataeans that had sympathized with the Thebans were allowed to live in the empty buildings and homes in Plataea. But the next year, the whole town was razed to the ground. After some 93 years of its alliance with Athens, Plataea was gone. This year, the Corcyrian Revolution also began. Thucydides provides a lot of detail about the revolution, but I will avoid the laundry list of names and the detailed factional strife underlying it all. Suffice it to say that Corcyra was the island whose colony in Epidamnus had started the whole affair perhaps seven or eight years before when they joined the Athenian alliance. The story of the revolution in that city and the various interventions of the Athenians and the Spartans eventually degenerates into a tale of repeated butchery, townsmen and neighbors and family members turning on one another. They slaughtered one another, one by one, or in groups. Thucydides' text here digresses somewhat into a dark but almost philosophical soliloquy about the nature of man. Here are some of Thucydides' words about the ways that people acted during the Corcyrian Revolution. Death raged in every shape, as usually happens at such times, there was no length to which violence did not go. Sons were killed by their fathers, and suppliants were dragged away from the altars or simply slain right there. Some people were even walled up in the temple of Dionysius and starved to death inside it. 
So bloody was the march of the revolution, and the impression which it made was the greater as it was one of the first to occur. Later on, the whole Hellenic world would be convulsed. The author then explains how revolution thus began to spread everywhere, to all the cities of Greece, how the heads of the popular or democratic parties in every city tried to bring in the Athenians to help, and how the aristocratic parties of each city tried to bring in the Spartans on their side. Another quote about the spread of revolution. Revolution thus ran its course from city to city, and the places where it arrived last from having heard what had been done before, they carried to a greater excess the refinement of their inventions, as manifested in the cunning of their enterprises and the atrocity of their reprisals. So each atrocity was just a challenge, you see, in a way to the next revolution, whose perpetrators would then outdo the latest acts of barbarity with something even crueler, something even more despicable. Thucydides goes on, words had to change their ordinary meaning and to take that new meaning given to them. Reckless audacity came to be considered the courage of a loyal ally. Prudent hesitation became cowardice. Moderation was now considered a cloak for unmanliness. The ability to see all sides was now called the inability to act. Frantic violence became the attribute of manliness. Cautious plotting was merely a means of self-defense. The advocate of extreme measures was always trustworthy, and his opponent, therefore, was always a man to be suspected. Thucydides comments also on how the new bonds formed by politics became stronger than family ties. Even blood became a weaker tie than party, from the superior readiness of those united by politics to dare everything without reserve, and the confidence of their members in each other rested less on any religious sanction than upon complicity in crime. And Thucydides laments the deterioration of honesty and trust in revolutions. Oaths of reconciliation being only proffered on either side to meet an immediate difficulty, only held good so long as no other weapon was at hand. But when opportunity offered, Thucydides says, he who first ventured to take his enemy off guard through this perfidious vengeance suite, since success by treachery won him the acclaim of superior intelligence. Men are readier to call rogues clever than to call simpletons honest. And Thucydides identifies the cause for all this depravity. The cause of all this evil was the lust for power arising from greed and ambition, and from those passions proceeded the violence. And he calls out the political leaders of these cities. In their acts of vengeance, they went to ever greater lengths, not stopping at what justice or the good of the state demanded, but making the political whim of the moment their only standard. Thucydides also laments the loss of Greek identity and tradition and morals in this conflict. Quote, The ancient simplicity into which honor so largely entered was laughed at now and disappeared, and society became divided into camps in which no man trusted his fellow. It's amazing that these same beliefs, deeds, behaviors, and actions can be seen in almost any revolutionary period down through history since that time. And we see many of these same things cropping up in our own present political discourse in the United States and really in the whole West 
in 2024, as we see our Western traditions deteriorate, the changing meanings of words, the hatred caused by political division that overcomes family bonds, the apparent disappearance of political moderation as politics devolves into two separate diametrically opposed camps. As Thucydides closes out his tale of spreading revolutions, he also adds in a note about the spreading of the war itself. At the end of that sixth summer, Athens was invited to send troops west to Sicily, where the Ionian Greek colonists of the city of Leontine had come into conflict with the Dorian colonists of Syracuse. Somehow, stretched thin as they were, half-starved and wasted by disease, the Athenians sent 20 more ships to Sicily, hoping to prevent Sicilian wheat from being exported, as it usually was to the Peloponnesus, and therefore starve the Spartans, and the Athenians even dared to dream that they might seize all of Sicily. This conflict would eventually bring all of southern Italy, where more Greek colonists lived, into the war. plague in Athens again. The first outbreak had lasted two years before abating. This new strain would batter Athens for another year. Over 4,000 heavy infantrymen would eventually die of this plague variant, as well as an unknown number of commoners, slaves, women, and children. Earthquakes in Athens, Boeotia, and elsewhere. And everywhere, treachery, bloodshed, fury, and destruction. Did any of the Greeks, I wonder, ask themselves if it would have been better to be conquered by Persia? Persia.